0: the factory owner he was awful the factory was already one month late with production it was right before chinese new year and over chinese new year the factory's closed for three weeks we were right down to the line and he said well you either take them all and pay for them all or you don't take any of them
1: Hey, yo, happy Thursday morning. It's a TMBA podcast, the show where we believe building a profitable business is the best way to create more personal freedom for you and your family. Welcome to the show. Good day, boss man. I'm just going to start saying episode 400 something. It's intimidating. Would you say the episode number? It's automatically, it feels like, oh God, there's a lot here. This is 400 something. That's what I'm going to start saying. (laughs) On this week's show. We're going to take a peek inside a mid-market luxury brand, a physical products business. I think it's fair to say a massive success. Ooh! Back to the physical products boss, man, your roots. Back to it. I like it. This is not only an episode about people who are passionate about the products that they created from scratch in the world, but they marketed it with incredible intelligence and their tactics are going to be shared on today's show. Today, I'm going to be speaking with Jennifer Chong. And Roman Khan, who are the founders of Linear, which manufactures and sells beautiful bags. These are leather handbags, Ian, both for men and for women, and watches retailing around the 200 to $500 mark. And this interview, which is pretty sweet, took place in my apartment. So it was face to face. And uh, I gotta say, I learned a ton from these two. And I suspect that the audience can as well today. I know uh, you took a few pointers. Away yourself, boss man.
2: Yeah, I mean, you're so excited about talking about this interview and talking about the business that they had built. You actually called me up right after you did the interview with them, just gushed to me for like 30 minutes.
1: Totally true. Stick around and you're going to hear what just was so inspiring and things that I think you can implement in your business. We're going to be talking about the state of Facebook ads and what they can do for your business from two people that have a really unique view on this marketplace. Okay, we're talking about a high ad spend here. We're going to talk about hiring and the risks of waiting too long to do so. Are you waiting too long to hire that key team member? Which, by the way, Jennifer and Roman are hiring right now. So if you do resonate with their message, get in touch. We're going to talk about how to research the marketplace. We're also going to talk about dealing with factory owners and how to find key suppliers.
2: And I know you're intimately aware of how difficult it is to find great suppliers. I am, but I wouldn't say just stick around to this episode if you're only interested in physical products because you guys go into a lot of detail about marketing and other aspects of running a large company.
1: Absolutely. You want to have a million-dollar Kickstarter campaign and much more marketing advice? Stick around. So I start this conversation by asking Jennifer and Roman how they hit on the name and concept for their brand. And just a clue, Roman's first language... Is Norwegian. We are we are home.
3: Home. We are Linear means lines in Norwegian and it represents our design aesthetic, which is really simple and minimalist. So if you go to our website, you'll see our products. You know, we don't have like 10,000 styles like other retail brands. We have one briefcase that we think we've perfected and yeah, we just have a very minimalist approach, and the name kind of reflects that.
1: For people that don't know Linear, like what does the business look like as a business?
0: So product-wise, we're in two categories. We're doing leather goods, which includes bags and wallets for men and women, and then we have watches as well.
3: We've been in business for three years now. We're 100% self-financed, so bootstrap. We started with $20,000 in savings. Our third year of business, we're, we're now on a run rate of eight digits per year, like analyze revenue.
1: Is that completely blowing your mind or did you guys sort of, yeah, we were we were aiming for this?
0: Well, we've had so many ups and downs, any businesses like this, where there are moments where you just don't know if you're going to make it to the next month.
3: We've had that for the whole first three years of the business. We've had so many incidents where we thought we would go out of the business. And we're finally above that like threshold because we built a business with one and a half founder. So at one point, I was working a full-time job paying the bills while Jen was working on linear full-time. And then we switched roles. So we've never been able to reflect on where we've come today because we're always running to the next milestone. And the next milestone for us is trying to figure out how we can, you know, when we talk about our competition, we don't talk about other brands, other startup brands in the same categories. We talk about Kate Spade, Michael Kors. The big ones, the four big ones in our in our categories. Who are the other two? Coach and Tory Birch. Together, they have 60% market share in the handbag and affordable luxury market. We think they're doing a crappy job with product. We think our product is superior. It is not to be <laughs> too cocky, but it is a lot better than their products. And you can learn about that through our content marketing, but... What we talk about now is like, how can we get there? And that's kind of what we're focused on. So to answer your question, whether it's blown our mind or not, I don't think we've had time to even reflect on that until you've actually asked that question.
0: My mind's not blown right now because I just feel like we're on a long journey. Yeah, exactly. We're just moving forward and putting one foot in front of the other every day.
1: What are the things that are keeping you up at night that's threatening the
3: business? That's a really good question. I think if you asked us that three months ago, the answer would have been very different than today. Three months ago, it would have been, will our suppliers be able to keep up with our growth? That would have kept us up at night. Now we have a production person.
0: This was something that we were struggling with for a year prior, where we were out of stock of everything, and the demand was much more than we anticipated, and our supply chain couldn't keep up.
3: What keeps us up at night now is... What is the cost of buying more market share in our categories, trying to understand that actual cost? How fast can we buy it? And when does that window close? And right now, there's a couple of ways you can buy it very cost efficiently. Facebook being one of them. Google Ads is not cost efficient anymore, at least not for our categories. You can buy with TV ads, you can buy with billboards, but that's very expensive. So for us, that question is, we haven't really mapped that out. Can we really become one of the big four? What would it take That's one thing that keeps us up at night, I think, or me at least.
0: (laughs) For me, I would say I see a lot of opportunity in front of us. I spoke earlier about the ups and downs that we've experienced. And I feel like we're, as Roman said, we're past the point where we feel like we're on thin ice. And so now we feel like we're on solid ground and there's a lot of potential in front of us. And I think the biggest risk is probably execution risk, where we just are so limited in terms of our own bandwidth as two people. Our team has been really tiny until now and still is really tiny. I mean, what we need is people to help us execute on all these things that we want to get done over the next 12, 24 months.
3: Right now, it's like, okay, can we find a pipeline of good candidates to join the team? And that's our biggest concern.
1: How are you doing that? It seems like you waited a little bit long to hire. Is that true or do you feel
3: it's true? We were definitely late with hiring. I think there are enormous amounts of benefits to that, but there's also, I mean, it's cost us a lot of growth. I do think now that we're in a place where we have a brand that resonates really well with a very big demographic and it's proven. So hiring now, we've mitigated a lot of the risk that comes with startups because we're not really a startup anymore. So culture-wise, we want people who have the same appreciation for excellence as we do. And that comes into every single thing. It comes down to the presentation on the website to the product, to the boxes. We use Fedrigoni paper for our boxes, Italian supplier for like everything about our customer experience, every single touch point with any, not even for a customer, but a visitor or anyone who touches the brand needs to be 10 out of 10. So it's not necessarily a performance culture that both Jen and I come from. Jen was a management consultant prior and I was in finance and e-commerce prior. And we were at like extreme performance culture driven companies. It's a culture for excellence. And what we've realized now, now that we started hiring is because we set the standards so high for our own brand and because we've gotten press coverage by publications that really matter to our design target, to the insiders in, in our market range, we've been able to attract talent that are top of their fields. Luckily, really, we're really in a good position that way. Like we didn't start Walmart, you know, we, we started at the other end of the spectrum
1: Just wanted to drop in here just to give a bit of background. Now, Roman and Jennifer didn't just up and start this business out of nowhere. Their experience before starting their own business was extensive. So Roman was the managing director of a property under Rocket Internet. So if you're familiar with startup world, you might've heard of, of Rocket Internet and he played a significant role in a few of their important properties in Asia. He's also one of the most knowledgeable people I've ever met about how Facebook ads work. And if you're interested in hearing a little bit more about that, we'll get into that towards the end of the show. And we'll also have the time code for that in the show notes. So you might be able to click through to your phone and see. Jennifer, on the other hand, was a highly paid management consultant. And those are pretty financially rewarding gigs. So I was curious as to what made her leave.
0: Well, I was really tired of consulting after about two and a half years of it. I felt like I'd learned a lot and I didn't want to continue working in that world because I really questioned the value of a lot of the work that I was doing. And so I quit because I had an idea to start my own company. I started Linear because we were solving a real need that Roman had, which was that he was looking for a leather briefcase for work and he couldn't find one that was really well made with really high quality materials, nicely designed, didn't have a huge logo on the front and wasn't like $3,000. And I saw an opportunity to make a briefcase that met those criteria and sell them online to people for a lot less than what they would have to spend with a luxury brand.
1: You call this the elusive briefcase that did not exist. Exactly. It's so strange to me because we're talking about bags and eventually watches, guys. Like these are everywhere. There's bags and watches everywhere. Wasn't there a part of your mind that was like, the world doesn't need
3: another bag? it's interesting because you always hear people saying like okay so when we went into this i can't recall a single friend that supported us in the idea of launching this brand <laughs> you know i would just call them out on their bullshit They'd be like oh this is great will be like no you're lying <laughs> this is not great i can tell on your face 99 out of 100 people i know i can't even think of a single person that thought this was a good idea not a single one
0: so why did we do it
3: the market is competitive yes but it's a $50 billion market. We never looked up the market size, but you go out on the street, everyone is wearing a watch or carrying a bag. The market is already established. You're not trying to create a category.
0: That's a very business-centric way of thinking about it, but there are a lot of bag and watch brands out there, but every brand is telling its own story and offering different value proposition. And where we saw a gap was for really high-quality products that were not crazily overpriced.
1: What is that value proposition?
0: Linear is a brand making high quality bags and watches, and we use the best raw materials that we can find. So full grain vegetable tan leather, which is tanned in a very artisanal way, the highest quality zippers. On our watches, we're using Sapphire Crystal, just really premium components. And we're working with the same suppliers as luxury brands. So we sell directly to our customers and we can sell our products for a fraction of the cost of what the equivalent products would cost with luxury brands.
3: I think our customers are also extremely smart people. So what they'll do is they'll spend a lot of time researching products before purchasing them. So, you know, they'll go beyond the Amazon review, they'll go to greater lengths, they'll spend a couple of hours researching what the best bag is out there, or you know, what what you can get for your money when you're looking for a bag for 500 bucks or whatnot. And then they'll land on our page, read about the materials we're using educate themselves and then make a purchase so there's clearly a market for smart consumers that are not being catered to and we feel like we're doing that right now
1: this week's show is sponsored by VideoBlocks, a service i really wish existed when we started our first business that's because videoblocks.com solves a problem that we and most other business owners have imagine that urgent moment When you need video footage or an image for a marketing pamphlet or a video online, but you can't find anything that's good quality and that you have the rights to use. Buying rights on images, video, and sound is expensive and tedious. And the free stuff on the internet was risky and unprofessional. Videoblocks.com solves all that hassle. Sign up for your seven-day free trial today at videoblocks.com slash tmba. And you'll get access to a library of high-quality media valued at over $10 million for only $149 a year. And that library includes video, photography, sound effects, and more. For your annual membership, you'll have access to unlimited downloads completely royalty-free forever. That's a pretty sweet deal. And they make sure that new clips and images are being uploaded and available to you all the time. So check it out. What do you have to lose? It's a seven-day free trial. Go to videoblocks.com slash TMBA and get all the stock video and images that you can imagine for the low price of $149 a year. That's videoblocks.com slash TMBA. Let's talk about the briefcase. So you guys sketch up this elusive bag that you've been wanting for years. You got to sketch. What do you do? I mean, where are you living? Are you in Dubai, Hong Kong? What, what are you guys up to at that moment?
0: We were flying everywhere at yeah. that time. So one of the first things I did when we started working on Linear was to fly out to the Paris Leather Fair. It was called Cue à Paris, and now it's called Premiere Vision, I think. They have these trade—the leather industry has about three or four trade shows every year, and they're incredible. All the tanneries set up booths inside a huge expo hall— they'll bring 20 or 30 hides and hang them all up. So you're just walking through this place and there's leather everywhere. And they're showing their latest articles and they have all these swatch books. And basically I, I showed up at that fair knowing very little about leather, but I wanted to take that time to go meet a bunch of suppliers and learn as much as I could about the product. With that knowledge, I mean, I came back and we were working on the, the sketches found a few factories to help us make prototypes. And man, this was such a long process, getting the design just right, because you'd send them sketches and they would interpret it however they would. <laughs> you'd get a sample and it would never be right <laughs> until the very end, and until it was perfect. And then you'd have to give them your feedback and then they'd sample again. And each time we made a bag sample, it would take four weeks or eight weeks. So there was a lot of waiting around.
1: Was it the leather producers making the bag or did you have to like buy the leather and send it over to a bag person?
0: Exactly. You buy the leather and send it to the bag factory.
3: It's a very, very complex supply chain, actually. Bags are, like, incredibly difficult to make.
0: Especially with the leather that we're using, which is vegetable tan leather, because it's very natural and very specific, and not a lot of factories know how to use it because it's only 10% of world leather production because it's kind of a niche thing used in higher-end products.
1: You guys mentioned it was really hard to find these factories, like the factories that Coach uses and stuff, they do everything they can to obscure that, basically.
3: Yeah, and Coach wouldn't be able to do what we do actually because the bag is constructed in a very particular way, and Coach doesn't use the same high-end leather as we're using. So you have to go even further up market, right? Quite a bit, actually. Coach is like the highest I know.
1: So. <laughs> <laughs> I wear the same T-shirt every day, Roman. <laughs>
3: <laughs> so though no, it's, we had to actually go even higher end and. That's what made it so challenging, actually.
0: We're competing with luxury brands, real luxury brands.
3: And they're very protective of their supply chain. Coach and Michael Kors and Tory Birch are not. They just have a ton of scale. So that's their competitive advantage. So they can go to factories and order like the minimum order quantities with their factories are huge. So that's it's a- like
0: 10,000 bags a month, literally.
3: Exactly. So that's the prohibitive factor from working with their factories. In addition to that, they couldn't meet our quality standards necessarily and work with our leather. So we had to go even more upmarket, and that created a lot of challenges. So how do you find the right factory that can do the job?
0: How do you convince them to work with you? Exactly. Because they're working with these really well-established companies. It was hard.
3: Yeah,
1: you're a management consultant showing up with a sketch of a bag that doesn't even exist.
3: And you don't offer a purchase order, right? You're saying like, okay, I'm going to make this sample take some images of it and then try to get some pre-orders on the internet and they don't even have an email address like they barely have one like their email addresses end with gmail or something right the way you pitch them is that you need to get directly in contact with the factory owner so you have to circumvent like so it comes down to people as anything else Instead of talking to an account manager, you need to get to know the owner. And then you kind of get on the call with the owner for 30 minutes. You convince him or her that your business is viable, that you have a product market fit. We told our factory owner that we both came from the internet of things in terms of background. And at that time, I had worked on cloning Zappos in Southeast Asia. So he knew what Zappos was in the US and was like, okay, that's legitimate. The key next step is after you convince the factory owner, you just have to fly out and actually take that leap of faith and just meet the team in person, spend three, four days with them, but go there prepared. So have as much as you can designed, have a very clear understanding of what your brand is. If you can go back in time, this is what we would do. So like have a clear understanding of what your brand is and show them a small presentation of five slides, just like explaining them who the customer is, how you're gonna acquire the customers and what the brand stands for, and then have design files ready.
1: It's easy to imagine why an account rep would deny you, but it's I could imagine how it would be harder for the, the owner of the factory. And part of the reason I'm happy you're sharing this story is that a lot of people in physical products have faced this conundrum where that factory owner actually wants new clients, but they can't advertise themselves because they're in a rock and a hard place. So you have to establish trust with them and then they'll say, yeah, let's give these kids a shot because I can't go on the internet and put up, do all the cool marketing things you guys are suggesting because the big brands have me on a muzzle, basically.
3: Exactly.
0: And so many factory owners want to own more of the value chain. They wish they could sell directly to consumers, but they just don't have the know-how.
3: So I have a friend, his family supplies the top athletic apparel brands in the US. You know, they went to his family and they do substantial turnover eight digits a year and told his family to build out more factories because they would ramp up volume in the contract there was no firm commitment financially from the brands they built out the factories and then the recession or the correction hit in that market and they just dropped everything so they were sitting with like empty factories and they were just completely screwed over and it almost put them in bankruptcy and they just have to turn everything around And for factories, that's like a nightmare situation. And we entered the market in a period where all other brands were shrinking. Not only was the overall market shrinking, but the pie was also shifting. So consumers were going from buying from big established brands to independent brands like ourselves. So they wanted a piece of the action. So the factory owner also sees it, right? They see their volume going down. And so I think as an e-commerce founder, if you're listening to this podcast and you're thinking of starting a brand, don't underestimate your power of growth. Like that in itself is exciting for a factory owner.
0: I think it's really important to show that you're business people.
3: It's very important to know your numbers. Think of it as Shark Tank, right? You go into the factory, the factory will ask you, okay, what does your balance sheet look like? And you'll be like, okay, my balance sheet is my personal bank account. (laughs) You need to see beyond that. And then you have to sit down and explain, like we built our business with crowdfunding. We've done more than 2 million in crowdfunding to date. And you just need to explain to them how crowdfunding works. People actually pre-order; they give you the money before you make the product. Like, it's just so far fetched for these guys.
0: A lot of the factory owners don't even understand our distribution model, exactly. even though we've told them many, many times. And
3: worked with them for two years. Yeah, now.
0: like we tell them, we've told them from the beginning. We don't have a warehouse. We're not picking and packing everything personally, and they just forget it or like don't remember. And so when we're scaling up, sometimes they're like, "How how do they manage this?" And it's like, it's totally scalable for us because it's outsourced.
1: Do your factories directly ship to your clients or do you guys have a third party?
3: We have a third party fulfillment warehouse. It's the most efficient way to do it. So, you know, you want control over that part of the customer experience, especially if you're setting the standard at our level. Apple does it directly from Foxconn, you know, at their scale, which is really interesting.
1: Your third party logistics situation, where is it?
3: In Hong Kong. So we ship everything out of Hong Kong. So you don't need multiple ones around the world, really?
0: At a certain point when we have enough scale, it would make sense because then we would be shipping domestically instead of internationally. But right now, it's just easier operationally for us to ship everything from Hong Kong. And Hong Kong, if you ship from Hong Kong, you get really favorable rates shipping internationally. I think it's cheaper for us to send something from Hong Kong to Norway than a place in Norway to another place in Norway.
1: Before the Kickstarter campaign, let's go back to the elusive bag that did not exist. How much money did you invest to do all the flying around, to do all the networking, and to do all the sample back and forth.
0: It was $20,000 in total, and that included the production costs for our photography and videos for the Kickstarter campaign. Half of it was the video and photography.
3: Yeah, $10,000 was just for the Kickstarter campaign.
1: What gave you the confidence that, I've seen a lot of people, they get to the Kickstarter and they just put up the imagery of the product and say, there's no risk here, let's see how it goes. Whereas you guys spent 20 grand. So what made you think to do that?
3: You're going to spend that money anyways, launching a brand. Let's say you want to build a, a simple shop and Shopify lifestyle business. You're definitely going to spend $1,000 a month building that brand. And it's going to take you six to 12 months to do it. And what we decided today to do is take a very compressed approach, like launch approach to it. So we were like, okay, let's go big or go home with the Kickstarter campaign.
0: I think when you launch a brand for the first time, you may as well give it a fair shot. And for us, giving it a fair shot was doing proper photography, doing a proper video and doing everything well, rather than trying to pinch pennies and come up with something that was kind of mediocre, because you only have one chance to impress people. And if you blow that chance, then you've just, you've not only wasted the amount, the marketing money that you spent getting that person there to look at your thing, but you've also wasted a lot of your time.
3: What was it like when you posted the campaign? Oh God, that was a crazy night. What time did we do it of the day?
0: We launched it right after midnight and I went to work the next day because I still had a day job. (laughs) So it was like right before bed, basically. We had no idea what to expect because before we launched, I mean, anybody could say, oh, I really like that briefcase, I would buy it. But you really don't know if they would buy it until they actually enter their credit card information and like hit checkout (laughs) or back the campaign.
3: And we had an email list of just 800 people. That was it.
0: But then within 30 minutes, we had $8,000 in pre-orders or pledges, which were essentially pre-orders. And by the time I went to work, we had $26,000 in pre-orders. It was crazy. And by 48 hours, we hit $50,000 and that was our goal for the campaign. So r- after that, we were like, oh, yes, we made it work.
1: So how much did the elusive bag raise? 150000
0: In about 40 days.
1: And
3: then the watch campaign, which is a few campaigns later. Uh,
0: a million. A million
1: bucks.
3: It's funny because like looking back, $10,000 is a lot of money. I mean, I don't think you can do it for less with a fashion category, to be honest. In a competitive fashion category, I think you have to spend at least that, if not more. I think if you're doing like a pen or something, that's a horrible example, but you get the idea where you're just selling something that's a bit more commoditized, less emotion, more focused on the futures and benefits of the product, then I'm sure you can get away with less.
1: What's the emotion you're tapping into with your customers? Like, what are they buying?
0: I think it's it's an idea of living a curated life and being very selective in the things that you choose to own and the things that you spend your time doing. We really try to communicate this with our imagery.
3: You're living a life where you're very conscious of your not only your belongings because you're buying a product from us, you don't want an overfilled closet, you're very conscious of that. I think if you come to our website and you you get the feel it, we're actually launching a new page in two days, you you just get that essence as soon as you land on our homepage, I think. That's just very clean and a simple way of living, I think. Is it taking
1: aim at these big fashion brands who is kind of like, well, pay the money and you get the status? Or is it you guys bring in more of a narrative?
0: We are very conscious about educating our customers. It's really important for us that people understand. If you're not in the industry, you don't know what questions to ask necessarily. And so we try to answer these questions proactively for our customers, like telling them about the tannage of the leather and explaining why YKK Xella zippers are better than non-YKK Xella zippers. Whereas a lot of other luxury brands are in the state where they're selling status and a lot of people are willing to pay for status, we are trying to appeal to people who don't necessarily care about status and wouldn't be caught dead wearing wearing a huge like LV logo on their shoulder, you know?
1: Louis Vuitton. Yeah, yeah. It's almost like we're all buying a sort of identity, but you guys are offering a bit more of a robust one. I was into watches for a while and I went to Hong Kong watch shopping and I read a ton about it and I became an educated consumer and I ended up with a $150 watch that I found like pretty rare on the it's a Casio. And what brought me into it was the story of why this particular watch was famous and like why this sub group of people really appreciated it. And I had essentially saved myself like $5,000 by this story. But for me, I felt like an elevated sense of status because I knew what I was being a part of when I was wearing that watch.
0: I think branding is all about telling a story and inviting people to be part of that story if it appeals to them.
3: Give them a sense of belonging. When we talk to our customers, we still do customer tickets. You know, you hear this recurrent themes, like our customers are buying our bags because they don't want to be a billboard for a brand. Like we don't have flashy logos on the outside of our bags and they're curious. You know, they as Jen said, like we provide the content on our website, but they're they take the time to actually click through and read it. Like yourself with the Casio watch. They'll they'll take the time. So that's our brand, essentially. So backtracking a little bit, we launched the briefcase campaign, $150,000 later, we're still had this arrangement where Jen was still working full time to pay the bills because it wasn't big enough to like, for both of us to quit. And then we launched a women's campaign that did $400,000. So this is women's bags, women's bags, eight months later, roughly, or nine months later. And that's when we were like, okay, we've done 400,000 now, Jen quit her job, and we both went full time into it. You know, then we launched our watch campaign. I think our families thought we were crazy both working on it full-time. And we launched the watch campaign, which did a million, and we were still just the two of us and one intern. And that took off, and I think that's really when people started taking us seriously.
0: My mom still doesn't take us (laughs) seriously, I think, but definitely our friends. I think they they were like, "Hey, they're onto something.
3: They were like, okay, this is a business. This is, like, gonna survive.
1: Now, it wouldn't be as compelling a story as it is if everything went swimmingly. Does it ever? Certainly not in entrepreneurship, but I think you can extend that an extra level for physical products, which have their own set of challenges. Gosh.
2: (laughs) With their second product range, women's bags, Jennifer and Roman had one of those very special entrepreneurial moments.
3: Jen had already quit her job, right? So now we're there on thin ice. That's the English expression, I guess. And we're both in it. And we go to the factory. We had like more than a thousand backers during the campaign. And by the time we shipped, we had even more, right? That's when we had started getting traction as a brand. So we had thousands of customers waiting. And the factory had, we had four styles of bags, but we had one particular style, which is called the soft tote. And the factory had basically manufactured that bag completely wrongly. How bad was it? It was just bad. 95% of our customers would actually not notice the defects on these bags. We could have sent them out and gotten away with it. But to our excellent standard of 10 out of 10, we just couldn't ignore the flaws in the bags. So we actually rejected the whole lot. We didn't want to take a shortcut where we sent out like 350 or 400 bags to Backers who have waited six months and just tried to get away with it, because we could have. We could have just ran away with the money, technically. We could have just sent them an inferior product. It was just like never crossed our mind. We just wanted to send out a perfect product.
0: Well, when Roman says we rejected the whole lot, what actually happened was that we tried to reject the whole lot, and the factory owner...
3: You paid for it,
1: right?
0: Yeah, the factory owner, he was awful. The factory was already one month late with production by their own fault. And at this point, it was right before Chinese New Year... And over Chinese New Year, the factories closed for three weeks. We were right down to the line. And we said, look, we can't accept these. There's a problem. And you guys messed up. And he said, well, you either take them all and pay for them all, or you don't take any of them. And he knew that we had thousands of people waiting for the, all of the other bags that came out well. So we decided, okay, you know what? We just need to focus on getting all of the other bags out. And let's hope that this guy is thinking long-term enough to... Find a good resolution with us on this. It didn't. <laughs> no, so we paid for everything.
3: I think we lost $60,000 altogether in this whole ordeal with the defective bags, with the delays, with the expedited shipping, with everything. We actually took a $60,000 loss. And this was at a time where the company didn't even have earnings. We had to recreate our supply chain from scratch.
0: Because we knew we couldn't work with that factory anymore for anything, because this guy was just being so unreasonable scumbag. and right. short term. was just like, yeah. And he was just essentially greedy. just stole money from us. He
3: stole money. I mean, if you look at it legally, he just stole money from us. There's no shadow doubt that there was like just bad intent. So we left and that was really chaotic. So we decided to go straight to the source where you could source the leather, which was in Florence, Italy. That's like the Mecca for leather in the world jen was still in hong kong she flew out to hong kong to sort out stuff with the fulfillment warehouse so i flew out ahead of time and there i am in florence 6 a.m in the morning at a rental car shop oh god and in italy where everything moves you're basically knocking on barn doors exactly renting a car driving out knocking on tannery doors that i found on google maps they're all in the same neighborhood someone should go in and consolidate that industry (laughs) it's crazy it's so inefficient. Just knocking on and pitching every single vendor there. And I swear to God, I think I've been to every single one that does vegetable down there. And I did that in like a week and then Jen joined me.
0: And then began the month of hell. So during that week when Roman was in Italy trying to figure things out, we still hadn't told the affected customers what was happening because we wanted to have a plan before we communicated anything to them. I got to Italy and our daily schedule looked like this. We would wake up at 2 in the morning because we needed to communicate with our warehouse, which was in Hong Kong. And the warehouse, basically our fulfillment provider, which served as a tech layer on top of the warehouse, which they subcontracted, they lost control over the warehouse. And they were supposed to send out thousands of parcels for us within four days. That was the agreement. And they sent out a few dozen of them and then everything stopped.
3: They're startup bros. They're like the type of startup bros that you meet at conferences. And they're like, oh, I raised $1 million. I'm running this logistics. And then when shit hits the fan, they hide underneath their cubicles. I mean, it's just like crazy.
0: We were calling them every day.
3: Did you guys lose money off of this campaign? Definitely. If you do the math, we probably lost $100,000. The foregone revenue was in the millions because we lost so much momentum. We didn't have product to sell. So we had like four or five months where the shop was not stocked of bags and we would have sold millions of dollars worth of bags and we just lost momentum and like momentum is everything.
1: I love this. You were in Italy, in Florence, having a horrible time. (laughs) shitty
3: Airbnb. Airbnb that didn't have Wi-Fi. Oh my God, the guy advertised that they had Wi-Fi?
0: The router was in another apartment and we had to sit next to the door to get a signal and we were calling people on Skype.
3: Imagine we're sitting right next to the door. It's slightly open so that the Wi-Fi comes true. We're sitting with our laptop. There's no chairs in the whole apartment, okay? (laughs) So there's like these small seats that we pushed next to the door We're sitting there with shitty headphones because we couldn't afford proper headphones. And we're calling 350 customers all over the world.
0: To give them bad news.
3: To give them bad news. We decided not to send an email, but to call every single one. Because again, the excellent standard of linear is 10 out of 10. And we wanted a customer experience like that. So we called every single one of them.
0: And they were living all over the world. And man, we would just divide and conquer. I don't know how we got through that.
3: What did you learn about your clients that day? That they're very forgiving. 99% of them are like angels and they were just so happy that we called and they were like, this is fine. This sucks, but it's fine. And they felt bad for us. Not that they were not getting their bag, but they just empathized with the situation and they trusted us to fix it.
0: Yeah. And they understood where we were coming from, which was that we didn't want to send something that we didn't think was 10 out of 10. Um, and so they appreciated that. I would say they were more forgiving because they were Kickstarter backers.
1: As opposed to people who bought it on the website or whatever. Yeah.
0: So they understand that we're entrepreneurs trying to make something happen. And there are lots of roadblocks all the time.
3: <laughs> so the schedule was crazy. In the morning, we would rent a car, drive out to the tanneries and visit factories. We would be done at 6 p.m., hand in the car. From 6 p.m. to like 10 p.m., we would call customers all over the world. And then... At 2 a.m. we would have to wake up because the fulfillment warehouse in Hong Kong would like start operating again to just yell at them and tell them to get their job done. It was crazy. We
0: didn't sleep more than three hours at a time for a really long time.
3: For two, three months. Yeah, it was crazy.
1: As is often the case in entrepreneurship, out of disaster comes inspiration.
3: And in Linear's case, it came in the form
1: of an idea for their next product.
3: That episode really stressed us. Our smartphones were buzzing all the time. And it also was the thing that we pulled out of our pocket all the time to check the time. We need to go to the stress center to figure out what time of day it was. So that like kind of pushed us down the path of getting actually analog watches. So we would be a bit disconnected and gain some sanity. We couldn't find a watch that we liked. So we decided to make one ourselves. Incredible.
0: And we saw a really natural extension with what we were doing with bags, which is Using really high quality components, working with the best suppliers and just selling things at a much more reasonable price than what you would get if you are buying it from another brand.
1: Have any of these big brands, I mean, watches are apparently sophisticated technology that really famous people make and have they taken
3: shots at you guys or? They're not taking shots at us because we're still tiny. Yeah, there are a lot
0: of independent brands growing right now. Watches are actually, there's a very low barrier to entry compared to bags.
1: That's a little surprising. I guess you wouldn't think that on the surface. You might say, well, a bag seems a little bit easier than a watch. It doesn't move, I guess.
0: (laughs) No, that's a really great point. Yeah. But, I mean, the movements, if you buy the movements from a reputable supplier and then you have a factory that knows what it's doing to (laughs) put the movement inside the case and make sure everything is working, it's pretty standardized, I would say. Whereas bags, they're three-dimensional. You have, so behind the leather, you have like a lot of reinforcement. And you have lining. <laughs> when you have Italians, it's just your supply chain, it gets yeah, a little exactly. more complicated. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right Ian,
1: so we're gonna take a bit of a turn here. I mentioned at the top that it would be interesting to get some of Roman's insights about the value of Facebook ads and how they can go to work in your business. I think it's fair to say that for a lot of people in our community now sort of a, a magical time for Facebook ads, you know, they can tend to be a little cheaper than other forms of advertising, but they're also confusing and changing fast. Roman has a really interesting take on the way he feels a lot of internet marketers, and I'll go so far to say specifically those listening to this show have a mindset that is poisoned by Google. And he's going to explain what he means by that in just a minute. So just in case everyone listening isn't internet marketers, we're going to play a little game so everyone can understand the next portion of the show. And we're going to do that by testing Ian. Oh, no. Yes, that's right. And we're going to test your knowledge of some internet marketing acronyms. Here we go. First acronym, you're on the spot. You have no visual aid. Put your iPhone down. CPM. Good, sir. What is a CPM? Cost per million. I think we should get the sound effect. (laughs) This is fun. We should do more of this. CPM is a term used to describe the price that you pay for having your ad appear 1,000 times, not 1 million. What's CM for? What's going on? You know what? That's a question that I, I don't have time to answer right now. <laughs> 1,000 times on the right-hand side of the screen while the user is either viewing Facebook or it could be a Google search or it could be a banner ad on the top of a website. That ad showing to your target market is called an impression, and the price you pay for 1,000 of them is a CPM. All right, boss man. Next one is CPC, and this is often called PPC. Cost per... Come on. All right. Now you're dragging your feet. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Which one do you prefer? Are you a PPC guy or are you a CPC guy? I'm a PPC guy. CPC is cost per click, or PPC is click, And these just refer to the pricing model that you pay for the actual click and not for the number of impressions. So it's a little bit more results oriented on the side of those who are selling you those CPC or PPC ads, because of course, you're, you're only paying if people click. One final thing, Ian, we're going to talk about this idea of inventory on Facebook, which has a different meaning than all that cat furniture we used to have in our warehouse back in the day. (laughs) When we talk about buying ad inventory on Facebook, inventory in a digital sense, and specifically when we're talking about advertising, can be a difficult and fluid concept because it can change based on Facebook's algorithms or how they decide to frame up that inventory to you. But essentially, inventory is the amount of impressions that you can buy on their platform. So
2: wait, did I win?
3: Yes, yes, you definitely won.
2: <laughs> All right, back to the show.
3: You know, we're members of Dynamite Circle. For the people who don't know what Dynamite Circle is, it's a place where you can meet other entrepreneurs who are location-independent. And we've met a ton of people there, and a lot of them approach us when it comes to marketing, right? They'll ask questions like, okay, how do you acquire customers? How do you do your Facebook marketing? And a majority of the people we talk to have honed their skills in Google. And then they come to Facebook with a mindset where they think in the same terms as Google. And and that's what I was referring to with a poison mindset or a biased mindset, where you're coming in with something that's query-based. You you know, Google, there's a set demand. You, there's only so many searches per month for a certain keyword, You can really assess how big the addressable market is, how much it's gonna cost you to acquire the customer. While with Facebook, you're actually generating the demand and you actually have to go into another very different mindset. It's kinda like the movie Inception, where you have to plant an idea into the customer, nurture that idea over a longer period of time, and then potentially convert them into customers. Of course, you can say the same about Google too, but with Facebook it comes down to owning content marketing skills and actually Focusing very much on, not so much on the metrics of CPC and whatnot, but taking a step back and getting into the mindset of who is my customer and what kind of content piece can I put in front of them to stand out in a very crowded newsfeed on Facebook, make sure that they become aware of my brand and then, you know, nurture that relationship. And it's very different from Google because when your customer discovers you through Google, they've already, they're already in the mindset of finding you, right? They're already in the mindset of finding a bag or a watch or whatever else you're selling.
1: On Facebook, you target demographics or people that are curious of like related content. Exactly. So if people like like Casio watches, you're not really sure if they're going to like linear watches, right? Exactly. But you're taking that risk by putting a piece of content in front of them and paying for it to be there.
3: And you then have to ask yourself like, okay, is the Casio watch customer my customer or not? And and that question becomes very complex on Facebook, I think, compared to Google, because with Google, you can go very narrow with a sniper rifle. And on Facebook, it's still, even though the targeting potential there is phenomenal, you're still going in with a shotgun a little bit compared to Google. The shotgun approach requires a little bit of a different mindset, I think. It needs to be less transactional, you need to you need to think about the brand holistically. So for instance, for us, for example, you want to serve content pieces that talk about vegetable tan leather and how that's different than what coach uses or Michael Kors uses, and it needs to be more educational, and you need to give your audience like tips on how to dress nicer. And and then you know, the top of the funnel needs to be very different than it is on Google.
1: It does seem like this is sort of a special time for Facebook advertising right now. Like how's it changed in the last
3: few years? My experience has been with Facebook marketing has only really been the past year where I've really gotten into it in detail. Prior to that, I was the CFO at a startup called Lazada. So we raised half a billion dollars to build Amazon in Southeast Asia. We eventually got bought out by Alibaba. Back then I was controlling a budget marketing budget of tens of millions of dollars per month so i had a very high level eagle eye view on our marketing spin and what we consistently saw back then was that facebook was the cheapest but deliverability was an issue being in front of the right customer at the right time was very challenging because facebook was just in wasn't as sophisticated of a product back then so then back then you were really going like rambo style with a machine gun you know the prices for the inventory was far less than what you see in the market today. I would say 30 cents on the dollar, 40 cents on the dollar. What you see now is that Sheryl Sandberg, I think, is doing a really phenomenal job segmenting. So they're doing two things. There's only two ways Facebook can really grow their uh, revenue. One is increasing the number of daily active users. They have 2 billion users now. I think when we started dabbling into Facebook, there was a billion users plus, So they've almost doubled or grown significantly, but the added users are from poor countries. So they're not really relevant to our brand, but that's one way to grow your revenue. And the other way is to improve the segmentation of that audience and the targeting possibilities so that you can increase the inventory price. And they've done that very well this past 18 months. Is that a good thing for you or a bad thing? It's a bad thing for us as buyers of inventory.
1: Because your marketing was good and you can segment their audience for them.
3: Exactly. And you can try to become a, a sniper with a machine gun kind of thing, you know, you just own in on those skills. Even though the tools are not there, you can kind of like try to perfect those inferior tools. Tools are getting better, easier to use. I think when we started, there were like 2 million active uh, advertisers on Facebook. Now there's 7 million and it took them like five or six years to get to 2 million. And then like in less than two years or 18 months or whatever the number was, they've three doubled that number.
0: Another big change we've seen is that a lot of larger companies are now getting into Facebook advertising. There are some stats on the budgets of Fortune 500 companies for Facebook ads, and I think it's like doubling as a share of their marketing spend every year.
3: Exactly, It's still in the single digits, but as as soon as they move their billion-dollar budget over to Facebook...
0: That's bad news for us. I mean, it hurts a lot right now because with a lot of VC-funded companies just spending willy-nilly on Facebook... And a lot of them don't do Facebook ads very well, and they're just kind of shooting from the hip because we feel like it's bidding up the CPMs for the customers that we're trying to target as well.
3: I mean, you can, of course, bid on a CPC basis too. Facebook allows you to bid in different ways, but the underlying way they charge you is on an inventory basis for impressions. And then it's up to you as an advertiser to be as efficient as possible to spark interest in that audience that you're displaying your ads to. Those CPM prices, the way we see it is that over the next 18 to 24 months, will definitely double. That's our prediction, and that's how we do our financial planning internally. We feel an enormous pressure over the next 18 to 24 months to get as many customers in the door as possible. We're bootstrapped, so we're constrained. We can't take millions of dollars of losses like these VC-funded companies. And to be clear, you guys are investing millions of dollars in Facebook, Yes. We spend seven digits plus on Facebook every year now. We want to spend more. The thing that's prohibiting us is the unit economics, of course.
1: You end up, because the bidding goes too high, you
3: end up losing money to get somebody to buy a bag or a watch, essentially. Exactly. So the way inventory prices work is it's like physics, it's like velocity, basically. So if you want a lost speed, the price is going to go up exponentially. If you, for example, want to be in front of 10,000 people today, you're going to pay a lower unit price than if you want to be in front of 100,000 people within the next 24 hours. And the reason for that is because there's only a set amount of inventory for the target demographic that you're going for. And if you want to buy a lot of that market share, literally that market share of inventory, then Facebook is going to charge you more because that incremental share is going to come at a higher price.
1: The idea is that if your brand's really, really big, that is the same as having a lot of velocity because you need to move a lot of bags every single day. When you said velocity, I was thinking, okay, I'm gonna have an Indiegogo launch. So I'm gonna buy all the inventory on Facebook for bags. And that's gonna be really expensive, but it's for my launch. But launching for a small brand is the same thing as Wednesday for a big brand. Exactly,
3: (laughs) that's a good way of saying it, yeah. They're paying
1: exponential rates for
3: the highest levels of that
1: inventory on a daily basis.
3: Exactly. And what happens is also what you see with Facebook. and we talk to a lot of people at Facebook, we have friends who work there. As you spend more on a certain audience on a daily basis, Facebook is not going to be able to serve you excellent customers, right? This is a figurative example. If you're spending 200 bucks on someone who follows Coach, for example, in our case, and I start spending $1,000 on that audience instead per day instead of $200, the quality of that incremental $800 spend is not going to be as good as the first $200 you spend. Because Facebook is just going to struggle to deliver highly qualified leads because there's only so many people in your addressable market that respond to Linear as a brand. Going back to it, over the next 18 to 24 months, what we see is we see a market where Sheryl Sandberg is still going to kick ass and do better segmentation and provide new products like Instagram ads, You know, refine that, make it even better add video ads build out on that and there's going to be more exciting stuff but that's not going to necessarily compensate for the underlying trend that Jen uh, touched upon which is Fortune 500 companies plunging money into this platform
0: we're going to be priced out
3: we're going to be priced out that's fact and as soon as you accept that fact that you're going to get priced out i mean we're not going to get completely priced out where we have to stop spending money on facebook altogether but there's going to be a set ceiling on how much we can spend the same way there is on google ads right now today So once that happens, and and that's the first part of this interview, you ask us what keeps us up at night. It's going back to that topic where like this is something we think about a lot right now. What can we do the next 18 to 24 months to really take the brand to the next level given these constraints? So our constraints are Facebook prices are going up. We're bootstrapped. We have a set budget. And then third is like cash flow. Like how do we balance these three things to really take this brand to a level where we're competing with the big four? And there's a couple of paths we see. I mean, we're brainstorming. I'm hoping like maybe in a year from now, we can come back and talk about it if, we, if we've if we been able to execute on it. But yeah, that's what keeps us up at night.
1: It's interesting because I've seen this with a lot of product brands is that you start with these like outside strategies. And as you sort of your company morphs to be more like the big incumbents, you start to use more incumbent strategies and it becomes more difficult to model their strategy. You continue to have to find a fresh way. It doesn't seem like it's going to be too much of a challenge for you, too, though, to find some continued clever ways to gain fans. I hope you're right. One of the things that you guys speak about linear differently than, like, Coach doesn't say that their customers are a community, but you always say that yours are a community. So why do you do that?
0: I think it goes back to how we were born. A few months before we launched our first collection, which had the soft briefcase at the center, we started a thread on Styleform.
1: Is it like a nerdy forum for super fans? Yeah. It's like the watch you
3: seek for watch? Okay.
0: Yes, for men's style. And there are a lot of guys who are into suits and shoes and bags. That's
3: 2.4 million unique visitors a month, I think.
0: Yeah. So we started a thread there and we basically introduced ourselves and said we identified a need, which was that Roman couldn't find a briefcase and we decided to make it ourselves. And here's some photos of our prototypes. What do you guys think?
3: And they loved it.
0: And they loved it. And. There were so many guys there who basically said, I've been waiting for this briefcase to be made by somebody, and you guys have made it. And so we fostered a very active community there. For a while, when that thread was active, we were the fastest growing.
3: We had 2,000 posts before we shut it down. It became so active that at one point, it just became a distraction. We just didn't have time to spend nurturing that community.
0: And there was a lot of discussion between us and them. We listen to a lot of their input for future products and different colors. And
3: They brought in the female customers, actually, their girlfriends or wives or sisters or whatnot to the, the women's campaign. That's why that became so huge also. So that was a really important ingredient. That's why we talk about community because at the end of the day, it is a community around the brand.
1: I just have two more questions. So one's t- very tactical, which is just to tell me a little bit about your live chat strategy and how that works in your business
0: where live chat has been really helpful for us. Before the launch of our watch collection, we set up a landing page to collect people's email addresses for people who are interested in the the collection and who wanted to know about it when it launched. And we set up live chat there because it was only live for a week. And it was incredibly helpful because very quickly we identified a lot of things that we weren't communicating properly. And so we were able to make changes really, really quickly with that live feedback. So it was through that process of having a lot of traffic going to our landing page and hearing the questions that people had that we were able to understand what questions people might have when they landed on our actual campaign page when that was live and so we were able to kind of anticipate those things and deal with them and address those issues before we even went live
3: which reduced the amount of emails we were getting and like conversion rate was super high for that campaign so that was like Really, really good insight. We actually wrote an article about it or we got into it by the hustle. So if you're like looking into the specific tactics, you can just Google it and you'll find that article that has all the download and like how you actually do that.
1: A stranger consulting assignment for you guys. I'm going to ask you to go back to yourselves four years ago, sit down at your desk and give you some advice on the business ideas in your head. Like, What do you wish you knew now about the journey that you
3: guys have been on? Personally, I came in with a huge bias that paid marketing doesn't work from my days at Rocket Internet because Rocket Internet spent billions of dollars on paid marketing and just made losses and losses. So I came in with this bias where I was like, okay, paid marketing doesn't work, which is really stupid. Now that I think about it in retrospect, I think I would have told myself while I was at Rocket at least that like we don't have the smartest people doing marketing here and incentives are not correctly aligned compared to if you're running your own business. I think that's the key message I would do, is like, don't go into this business with biases that you built up from your previous work experiences.
0: I wish I would have told myself to try to get experts and consultants and friends to give advice on specific things, on domains that they, they were familiar with. And We went a really long time without having a bag expert on our team. And we were relying too much on our vendors to do a good job. I wish that when we were setting up our fulfillment operations in Hong Kong that we'd spend a lot more time asking for references from our suppliers to understand exactly what the experience was like working with them so we could have avoided that fiasco that we had with our Kickstarter fulfillment. I wish that we'd spent more time actively seeking out other people who currently work in the industry to get their advice and just make connections. I think there's a lot you can learn from people.
1: Guys, thanks for sharing your story on the show. Thanks. Thanks Thanks for having us. First off, big thanks to Roman and Jennifer for... I love doing the in-person interviews, Ian. We all had the headphones on. We all had the pro mics. I felt like we were you know, taking it to the next level, doing it in person.
2: Next level in your apartment. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. Next level, I think, would be actually in the studio. Yep. From that... And then next <laughs> level from that might be something even cooler, like on television or whatever. But yeah, this is definitely next level TMBA. For sure. <laughs> we need to look into
1: this. And talking about growth, Linear are scaling their team right now. And they've got job openings. And if you've got talent, check them out at L-I-N-J-E-R. That's co. Links to their site, their background, and everything we've mentioned on this pod will be posted at tropicalmba.com slash linear. So that's tropicalmba.com slash l-i-n-j-e-r thank you again to today's guests and thank you boss man for your fine accompaniment and for doing such a great job on your internet marketing quiz you passed oh well thank you very much (laughs) we'll be back next thursday morning see you next week